Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. What a week in the national park system. More parks started to reopen last week after their closures due to the coronavirus pandemic. Among them was Bryce Canyon National Park in Utah, and the Blue Ridge Parkway opened up more miles of pavement along that scenic corridor that runs from Shenandoah National Park in Virginia to Great Smoky Mountains National Park in North Carolina. Great Smoky, by the way, reopened some of its roads and trails on Saturday. We also told you about some intriguing research into the collapse of the Flat Creek Glacier in a remote corner of Wrangell St. Elias National Park and Preserve in Alaska. If you haven't seen the video that was part of that feature, be sure to check it out. We also took a look at the Interior Department's welcome decision to expand the Bison Conservation Initiative that dates to 2008, and told you about efforts at Vicksburg National Cemetery to carefully recover the remains of some Civil War soldiers whose graves were disturbed by mudslides. For those stories and more on national parks and protected areas, visit nationalparkstraveler.org. We also ran a mini-fundraiser last week to help with travelers' coverage of national parks and protected areas, and a big thanks to all who contributed. Special thanks to Doug Lean, the force behind Ranger Doug Enterprises, and Traveler Board members Jim Stratton and Rebecca Latson for their huge support of our funding drive. In this week's show, I talk with Robert Young, Director of Western Carolina University's Program for the Study of Developed Shorelines, about a project to more accurately determine the cost sea level rise could inflict on coastal units of the national park system. We also take a look ahead to summer in the national park system, the watery side of this system specifically, with a look at some of the prime sea kayaking destinations awaiting paddlers. Climate change threatens the national park system in so many ways. More intense wildfires are sweeping some parks. Invasive species are gaining hold in others. And sea level rise and more potent hurricanes threaten national seashores and other coastal units of the national park system. Rob Young is director of Western Carolina University's program for the study of developed shorelines and in recent years has been taking a close look at many coastal units of the park system to see how they might be impacted. Most recently, the program has been developing a protocol for assessing those threats, and Young joins us today to discuss that work. Welcome back to The Traveler, Rob. Glad to be with you. So this assessment vulnerability protocol, I know um, the Park Service in the past has done some reports looking at sea level rise, and, and your program has done quite a few reports looking at it. Is this the first protocol that's being put in place for actually analyzing those threats? Well, within the National Park Service, I think this is the first attempt to really formalize the approach to looking at the vulnerability of every building, every road, bridge, uh, cultural resources in one generalized approach so that we can keep it all well organized and compare the vulnerability from park to park in a way that will be useful for managers both at the individual parks and at the regional level. So, you know, there may have been some smaller efforts in the past to 
look at exposure to hazards and climate change in sort of a smaller window. But what we're trying to do is ultimately look at everything service-wide, starting with all the coastal parks to give the National Park Service the tools that it needs to allocate the spending that they have. And that's no small task. Um, As I understand it, there are a little over 100 coastal park units in risk zones, and they include 15,348 structures valued at almost $71 billion. Uh, Yeah, it's it's going to be a lot of work. Yeah, by the Park Service's reckoning, there are just over 100 parks that are potentially exposed to rising sea level over the next 100 years. And uh, those parks all contain a lot of individual buildings, structures, uh, stretches of highway. And our job is to put a vulnerability score on every single one of those assets. Wow. And and of those assets, I believe um, you've determined that roughly 30% are considered at high risk of sea level rise? So that um, number that you're referring to is is simply sea level rise itself. So we did a sort of a big picture assessment before we began all of this work, just trying to initially take a look at the the number and types uh, and value of Park Service assets that are exposed to about a meter of sea level rise. And you know that was a very high level overview um and what we're doing now is drilling down much more and looking at things like storm surge flooding and uh, coastal erosion in addition to sea level rise and providing very detailed assessments uh you know building by building road by road right uh now you just mentioned storm surge and we've got sea level rise and we have storm surge and and those pose two different threats um Isn't that correct? I mean, last year we saw Hurricane Dorian, I believe it was, and it was storm surge that really did the damage to Cape Lookout National Seashore? Yes. Uh, You know, if you are assessing all of the stressors uh, in coastal parks right now, 80, 90% of the exposure and the vulnerability is the hurricane that we could have impact us this summer. Really what sea level rise does is gradually makes those impacts a little bit worse over time. So it it tells us that any issues that we're having with coastal erosion or exposure to storms like hurricanes, any issues that we're having right now, uh, sea level rise tells us that none of those problems are going to get better over the next few decades. It's it's only going to get incrementally worse and the exposure is going to incrementally increase. The, really, the only question is how, how fast is it going to get worse? Yeah, and that's, that's what everybody's wondering. Let's talk about some specific sites and, and hopefully you can shed some light on it. Um, for instance, the Flamingo area of Everglades National Park. I was down in uh, the Everglades in March and uh, made it down to Flamingo. And as you well know, they've had some... Tremendous hurricanes ravaged that area in in past decades. In fact, I think it was uh, back-to-back hurricanes in 2005 that uh, did in the lodging 
down there. Uh, the Flamingo Lodge was uh, raised after those hurricanes. And now they're slowly starting to put some lodging back. And right now we've got eco tents, which can be, you know, packed up and moved out of the way in the event of a large hurricane. And they're going to be building some housing units on stilts, as it were. And any idea, I mean, is it a threat to, to be putting in substantial infrastructure at Flamingo at this point? Or are these problems, as you said, decades down the road? Well, vulnerability of any particular building is a combination of two things. It's a combination of the exposure of the particular site and the sensitivity of whatever it is that you build there. So um, it's a little bit more than just, is there going to be some water here in the future? Because in Flamingo, there probably will be. The second portion of a vulnerability score is what happens to the infrastructure when the water gets there. And certainly at Flamingo, the National Park Service and the contractors who have been working on this project for a little while now, the concessionaires, what they're trying to do is provide some reasonable continued visitor use and access to that part of the park, but decrease the sensitivity portion of the vulnerability score as much as possible. So they're looking at infrastructure that has reasonable elevation, infrastructure that can be moved if necessary, and decreasing the likelihood that the next flood will cause the same amount of damage that it did 15 years ago. So I think that that's a pretty reasonable approach still at this time when, you know, your mission as a park is to protect natural resources, but also to provide some visitor access so that folks can enjoy uh, our natural heritage. Now, moving a little bit closer to your backyard, uh, the Outer Banks of North Carolina, you've got two seashores, uh, Cape Hatteras National Seashore and Cape Lookout. And as most of our readers and listeners know, um, Cape Lookout was sliced up a bit um, last September by Dorian, and yet it's slightly different than Cape Lookout, and it's much more wild, as I like to say, and it's not as developed. Whereas with Cape Hatteras National Seashore, you've got Highway 12 running down the length, and that highway has had a lot of troubles in recent years with staying open and staying in one place, so to speak. How does the Park Service deal with that and the, the local county officials and even the state of North Carolina? How do they deal with the, the prospect of continued storms tearing up Highway 12 and the cost to replace that? Well, Highway 12 is certainly a difficult issue for the state of North Carolina, for those localities, and for the National Park Service. You know, it is the primary avenue for visitor access to not just to Cape Hatteras National Seashore, but to all of the communities that surround the park. Uh, some are right within the park, to the north, to the south. And the state of North Carolina, at least for the time being, has uh, committed itself to keeping that road open. And this places Cape Hatteras National Seashore in you know, a little bit of a difficult spot. Um, they have to balance being a good neighbor to those communities that surround the park and with their, also their goal to protect the natural resources and to allow the natural processes to 
continue to form and shape the barrier island as they always have. And yeah, it's a very difficult balance to keep, right? And I think that uh, the park has been doing as as good of a job as one might hope. There will continue to be pressure to use some park lands for coastal stabilization projects like beach nourishment and dune building um, that's designed primarily to protect the infrastructure that's that's behind the park on the barrier island. Um, and you know, I think the the park is trying to find a way to allow that to happen in a reasonable fashion. Um, but there are a wide variety of opinions ranging from none of this should happen to uh, let's take back portions of the park and, and have full control over our ability to protect highway 12. And, you know, right now I think that leadership at Cape Hatteras national seashore is doing an admirable job of trying to find that balance and there are a lot of parks that are going to be in the same position as sea level continues to rise and the, quote, civilian infrastructure that surrounds our parks becomes increasingly threatened by storms and, and rising sea level. We've been talking with Rob Young, director of Western Carolina University's program for the study of developed shorelines. Uh, his team has been working on an asset vulnerability protocol for the National Park Service. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance. Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. We're back with Rob Young, director of Western Carolina University's program for the study of developed shorelines, talking about work to develop a uh, vulnerability protocol for assets across the national park system along coastal units of the national parks. Rob, your team recently completed, I believe, a, a coastal hazards infrastructure vulnerability assessment. That's a mouthful for the town of Duck on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. What, what did you find there, and is it um, representative of of what you would find along the Outer Banks of North Carolina? Well, the so the effort f- to do a municipal vulnerability assessment for the town of Duck is uh, sort of a nice spinoff of the work that the National Park Service has funded for the last five years. So we're also trying to take this protocol that we've developed for the National Park Service and find ways to use it in 
coastal municipalities like the, the town of Duck. The town of Duck is on the northern outer banks of uh, North Carolina, not too far from Cape Hatteras National Seashore. And it's a barrier island setting. The town of Duck stretches from the ocean front to the estuarine side. Now, most of the uh, vulnerability in Duck, interestingly enough, is, is actually on the backside of the island. There's significant elevation in the dunes that have not been bulldozed in the central part of Duck. So uh, it's, it's in uh, better shape than a lot of coastal municipalities. And it was really a pleasure to work with the town management and the elected officials to be allowed to go building by building in their commercial strip and give them some perspective as to where the real vulnerability was and look at their roads and help them identify where the travel pinch points are going to be in the future. And you know, their plan is to use this very detailed science-based assessment of their infrastructure to get funding for resilience projects and adaptation projects. And I think that, you know, what we're trying to do is create a model for what other municipalities in the coastal zone should be doing to assess their own vulnerability. And, you know, again, what makes our approach unique is the fact that we do this building by building and road by road. We're not just making another map of sea level rise or another map of where the storm surge is going to be. We're actually really drilling down and giving the decision makers and the planners a detailed perspective of the exposure of their community to flooding and erosion and sea level rise and the sensitivity of their infrastructure. And then that provides a roadmap to the things that they can do to reduce the vulnerability through reducing the exposure or reducing the sensitivity. Right. And I guess uh, two of the primary adaptation measures are elevation and or relocation of, of buildings and, and I guess roads, although I'm not sure how you can relocate a road on the Outer Banks. It's a pretty narrow strip. Those aren't cheap. No, uh, none of this is cheap. Living on barrier islands is not cheap. And you know, we've, we're spending billions of dollars to pump sand on the ocean front everywhere from Maine around to Texas in order to try and hold these shorelines in place in front of resort communities. And so, uh, you know, any of the actions that we're taking right now to continue to protect coastal infrastructure and to preserve as long as we can this coastal economy, it's all going to cost money. And, you know, our, our hope is that by looking at the vulnerability of individual buildings and roads, we might encourage some municipalities and some land managers to consider uh, the relocation of some of the most vulnerable structures rather than spending billions trying to hold an entire shoreline in place. So that's, you know, the goal here is to make the tremendous amount of money that we already spend trying to protect the coast to, to, to spend it in a way that's more pinpointed and cost effective. Yeah. Yeah. Um, has Duck made much progress in, in looking at the, the costs of its issues in terms of elevation or relocation? Well, I, I think that, you know, they've had some awareness of where their long-term issues are going to be already. And the work that we've done has provided a strong scientific basis uh, 
to confirm some of their existing suspicions. And I think they are very serious about seeking uh, adaptation and resilience funding to address the areas that they have that are uh, highest vulnerability and the, and the biggest threats to their long-term prosperity over the next few de- decades. So, uh, so yeah, I think so. But, but have they identified a, a rough estimate of what it might cost? I don't think we're that quite quite that far down the road. The report was just delivered to them a couple of months ago. And uh-huh. uh, so we haven't really specked out the costs of any of the projects that they might move forward with yet. But as I said earlier, I, you know, I think the, the duck is in um, a little bit of a better situation than many coastal municipalities because they have tucked most of their uh, public and commercial infrastructure on the backside of the barrier island. Mm-hmm. And it's in a place where the estuary is fairly narrow and they're a long way from the nearest inlet. <laughs> so, you know, th- it's a place where you aren't, we aren't going to be expecting to see any 30 foot storm surges anytime soon. Yeah. Yeah. As going back to the national park service and, and the coastal park units that uh, have to be, analyzed is is there a timetable for getting that work done well we hope to be uh finished with the entire southeast region of uh, the national park service all the coastal parks in the southeast region within about a year or a year and a half Hmm. and then we will be giving an overall assessment to the national park service of the relative vulnerability of all of the assets in all of those southeast parks so Everything from you know, North Carolina stretching around to the, the U.S. Gulf Coast, and our our plan at the moment, um, p- pending the availability of continued funding for this work, would would be then to move into the Northeast region, where we have we've done six, seven, eight parks, but there you know would be another twenty parks or so to to do, and and that would be quite an accomplishment because the vast majority of the vulnerability to park assets on the coast it is in the Northeast region and the Southeast region. It's on the U S East coast and the Gulf mm-hmm. coast, you know, the West, the West coast and assets in places like Guam and Hawaii that don't have nearly the exposure that we have here on the East coast and the Gulf coast. Yeah. And I can't imagine that, uh, any mitigation is going to be inexpensive. I mean, you look at Cape Hatteras national seashore and back, back in 1999, I believe it was the, moved the lighthouse uh, roughly more than a half a mile from where it had stood since 1870 because of uh, the erosion of the the barrier islands there. And you look at uh, Portsmouth Village at Cape Lookout, and there's just all these historic structures and whatnot. Have you any indication that um, the Park Service has the financial wherewithal to tackle primary mitigation measures? I know you don't work for the Park Service. I'm just wondering if you've had any discussions and, and seen eyebrows raised and deep sighs taken. <laughs> well, there's no question that it, doing everything that we would love to do would be incredibly expensive. But parks do receive funds, especially post-disaster, mm-hmm. to re- replace infrastructure, to repair infrastructure, to fix things that get knocked down during storms. And so there are always opportunities to respond in a adaptive fashion to those kinds of incidents within the National Park Service. That's not to say that they don't have the funding for uh, projects that they receive annually as well. And, you know, to your ultimate point, the fact that 
a lot of this is going to cost a, a pretty decent amount of money is a, a good argument for starting now <laughs> because you're not going to be able to do all of it at once. We couldn't do all of it sure. now, and you're not going to be able to do all of it at once 30 years from now when everybody is scrambling for funds for coastal adaptation. So, you know, I think that there is a real possibility to do a lot of good coastal adaptation within coastal parks and within our municipalities. But we really need to start making those changes and those wise decisions now so we can do it incrementally rather than waiting until, you know, we have to try for whatever reason to do it all at once. Yeah. Um, Hurricane Sandy, Superstorm Sandy back in 2012, I believe it was, did quite a bit of damage to Northeastern National Park units. Um, any thoughts on how they rebuilt those areas with um, adaptation or in mind? You know, I think they did the best job that they could. Uh, the National Park Service formed a rapid review team that implemented a wide number of important and resilient changes to the infrastructure that they did rebuild. There were some things that were not rebuilt. There are some buildings that were decommissioned along the way. And so, you know, I, I think that our hope is that having this very detailed analysis that we're doing right now for the Park Service will make all of that even easier in the future. Yeah. I know you have a lot of work to do going forward over the next few years, at least. Does any one unit of those 103 uh, coastal units stand out above the others as in terms of threats? You know, there's, there's a lot of extreme vulnerability spread across a lot of parks. Some of the smaller parks like Fort Pulaski in Georgia, you know, the entire thing is highly exposed and highly vulnerable. Yeah, they've dealt with a lot of flooding. Yes. So, um, you know, there, there are a lot of difficult decisions to be made. And I, you know, I think that the, you know, the Park Service has definitely recognized that in order to make those difficult decisions, you really need something like this universal vulnerability assessment where they can look at the scores for each building and you can compare them across the Park Service. So, you know, a five at Cape Hatteras means exactly the same thing as a five in Big Cypress. And that's, you know, what we're trying to do so that you can prioritize the spending at the park level, but also at the regional level. Yeah, it sounds like a great tool to be able to to look across a, a number of parks and determine which is uh, the most needy, as it were. We've been talking today with Rob Young, the director of Western Carolina University's program for the study of developed shorelines. Uh, he and his team are working on an asset vulnerability protocol for the National Park Service to take a look at uh, 103 coastal park units at the uh, risks that they face from sea level rise and storm surge. Rob, it's been a pleasure as always, and I, I look forward to your work, and I'm sure the park superintendents look forward to it as well. Well, thanks very much, Kurt, and I uh, always enjoy being on your podcast and keep up the good work yourself. The reason that we're all doing this work at Western Carolina University is because we feel it's a privilege. We love parks. I never would have imagined as a kid where we spent our summer vacations primarily in national parks, that I would have the opportunity to play even a small role in uh, assisting the National Park Service with protecting these critical natural areas and our natural and cultural heritage. And 
you know, we're just, we just feel so fortunate to be able to conduct a project like this. Well, watching what's going on with climate change and the the more um, intense hurricanes that we're seeing, I I don't think it's a small role, Rob. Um, There's a lot of very valuable and important um, cultural and historic as well as recreational aspects to these units of the park system. And uh, figuring out how best to protect them is a a great service I think you're doing to the park service. Yeah, well, I I appreciate that, and I don't disagree. And I I would be remiss if I didn't add that um, I have a fabulous team working for me, uh, Katie Peake, Blair Tormey, and Holly Thompson. And they're the ones who really do all the work. And, you know, I just uh, talk to you on shows like this and (laughs) take all the credit. So it's it's definitely um, a group effort where I'm just the sort of the cherry on top. Okay, well, we we appreciate your time for sure talking to us. All right, Rob. Well, thank you very much. And again, looking forward to your report. Great. Take care, Kurt. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, a training center, a conference center, and a leadership center all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences that it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. I've long been a paddler but primarily of canoes and occasionally rafts. While I have a few times gotten into a sea kayak and paddled away from shore, I never fully embraced the sport, until now. Having placed an order for a sea kayak worthy of big lakes and ocean waters, while awaiting delivery, I naturally have turned my attention to where in the national park system this new hobby would fit, and the results were fairly breathtaking in the parkscapes they entailed. Why sea kayaking? The boats ride closer to the waterline with less profile than a canoe and so aren't blown about as much by the winds as canoes are. As a result, they travel faster. You can also stay drier than in a canoe as long as you don't roll, although you can't carry as much gear as in a canoe, which is why I'll hold on to ours. Now, as to where in the park system you might cast your eyes with sea kayaking in mind, here are some, but certainly not all, of the possibilities. This list is intended primarily with multi-day trips in mind. There are more day-tripping destinations if you have sit-on-top kayaks. Yellowstone National Park, Wyoming Having long dipped my canoe paddle in Yellowstone's big lakes, Lewis, Shoshone, and Yellowstone, 
This park is a natural for sea kayaks. Indeed, when the afternoon winds kick up along with the waves, the enclosed nature of a sea kayak and its low profile makes it the perfect craft for these lakes. That's not to say I'm going to abandon my canoe. We've managed all these waters in the past with it, and it offers some benefits kayaks can't, such as greater carrying capacity. Head to Shoshone Lake, and you have some beautiful campsites to start and end your days at. And the Shoshone Geyser Basin on the western end of the lake, which happens to be the largest backcountry lake in the country that you can't access by road, is amazing. Head to either arm of Yellowstone Lake and you'll find yourself deep in the park's interior in a landscape roamed by wildlife. My second trip there, by canoe with a third buddy and kayak, had us return home with memories of grizzly bears, howling wolves, and chortling sandhill cranes. Grand Teton National Park, Wyoming Jackson Lake is a great place for an overnight or two with some islands you can camp on, but it's certainly not as big as Yellowstone Lake and won't take you long to circumnavigate. It might be better suited for a day trip. But whether you opt for a day or several, paddling beneath the Tetons on a bluebird day is not something you'll forget. Those jagged, battleship-gray peaks with their snowfields and glaciers hold your gaze and have you grabbing for your camera. Jenny and Lee Lakes also can be paddled, but just don't compare in size to Jackson Lake. Glen Canyon National Recreation Area, Utah When the Glen Canyon Dam was completed in 1966, it used a concrete wall in a pinch point to turn the Colorado River into a backwater of considerable size. The resulting Lake Powell is 254 square watery miles, and within those miles are plenty of side canyons to explore by sea kayak. Afternoon winds that can catch your choice of craft make kayaks more functional than canoes on the lake. Whether you head down from height or up from Hall's Crossing, there are numerous options for extended trips. Specific canyons you can head into without worrying about motorized watercraft include Antelope, Labyrinth, and Lost Eden. You do need to contain your solid human refuse on this lake-slash-reservoir, and that might dissuade some folks from exploring this sandstone beauty. Kenai Fjords National Park, Alaska Like Glacier Bay National Park, Kenai Fjords is a place to paddle if you want to see tidewater glaciers up close. One popular destination for paddlers is Bear Glacier Lagoon, a pro-glacier lagoon a lake that forms between a glacier and its moraine, the park staff notes. The lagoon is an incredible place to explore and see giant icebergs that have calved from the largest glacier in the park. Another good destination is Ialic Bay, where the park's largest tidewater glacier, Ialic Glacier, empties. Reaching Bear Glacier Lagoon could require a water taxi, something the park recommends. A number of guiding operations authorized by the Park Service can help you paddle these waters. Voyagers National Park, Minnesota Located in northern Minnesota, with the Canadian border across the water, voyagers can take an effort to reach, particularly if you want to paddle your own boat. But once here, you've got a nice collection of lakes to paddle. Kabetagama, Namakan, Sandpoint, and the big one, Rainy. There are many smaller lakes, too some that you can piece together with some portaging to really get away from others and experience the wilderness as the Courier de Bois did 300 years ago. North Cascades National Park, Washington 
Most travelers to North Cascades National Park are captivated by the snowy crags of the high country. But embraced by those mountains are a number of lakes perfect for paddlers. Ross Lake lets you string together a number of days on the water with overnights and designated campsites. Back in 2014, Peter Weiss and some friends kayaked Ross Lake for a string of days. Ross Lake was calm once again the next morning, and the shimmering waters reflected the various mountains surrounding the lake, Wise wrote in a piece for the traveler. There was still snow on the tops of some of these peaks even in mid-September. We had plenty of room to ourselves on the 23-mile-long lake that stretches north into Canada, one reason we'd scheduled the trip after Labor Day. While we did see a couple of other kayaking groups and a fair number of small motorboats bringing tourists north from Ross Lake Resort, we were on our own. Cape Lookout National Seashore, North Carolina For those looking for a wild national seashore, Cape Lookout fits the bill. It's not built out like Cape Cod or Cape Hatteras National Seashores. In other words, no pampering paddlers. You need to know your skills and be self-sufficient. If that's you, you can have an incredible time at Cape Lookout. This seashore, with its 112 miles of what the Park Service describes as uninhabited shoreline, offers paddlers a raw and challenging backcountry experience. Nowhere else on the southeast coast will you encounter an uninterrupted barrier island chain in such pristine condition on the magnitude of Cape Lookout National Seashore, notes the seashore staff. Novice paddlers can work on their skills in the calm waters of core sound and back sound, while those with many watery miles under their paddles can head out the inlets into the Atlantic. With luck, your dinners will include fresh fish pulled from the ocean, sunrises will glow red glistening off the waves, and sea oats will festoon your campsite. You're more than welcome to plan a multi-day trip and camp on the seashore's beaches, just be sure to file a float plan with the park staff so they have an idea where you're heading and when you plan to return. Everglades National Park, Florida If heat and bugs don't bother you, by all means consider paddling this subtropical national park. Its 10,000 islands section is renowned for paddling, but you should study up on how tides can affect paddling and know when the tide will turn during your paddle. This area offers campsites to create a multi-day exploration of this wondrous area. Wildlife you might encounter ranges from pink rosate spoonbills to dolphins. Michael Lanza took his wife, Penny, and their two children on a canoe trip into this area and wrote about it for The Traveler in 2014. Indian Key Pass Channel, ranging roughly 200 yards to a half mile wide, meanders among tiny flat islands covered in forests of dense mangroves. My nautical map shows hundreds of isles, or keys, knitted together by a maze of channels. Looking out on this ubiquitous land and seascape, Penny and I agreed that we're happy to have chosen one of the most beginner-friendly, multi-day canoeing trips in the Everglades. It would be easy to get lost out here. In the main channel, the air erupts with movement and noise. Songbirds chatter and flit among the trees along the shores. Cormorants and brown pelicans skim the water's surface. Great blue herons lurk motionlessly at the water's edge, ready to stab at fish. Point Reyes National Seashore, California Sea kayaks are the vessel of choice for this West Coast National Seashore. 15-mile-long Tamales Bay is a great setting for paddling, and you'll likely encounter seals there. Drake's Estero and Limantura Estero are also good choices, although kayaking is only allowed from July 1st through February 28th. 
to provide some solitude for harbor seal pupping season, which is from March 1st to January 30th. Experienced paddlers will find challenges along the seashore's Pacific coastline. According to the park staff, the most frequently used section of the coast by kayakers is in Drake's Bay from Chimney Rock to Lehman Tour Beach. Other sections of the coast are kayaked, but they are not as sheltered from the prevailing wind and ocean swell, and are therefore much more dangerous. Glacier Bay National Park and Preserve, Alaska Glacier Bay is for wilderness travelers. While the bay is 65 miles long, too long for all but the hardiest and experienced paddlers, you can hitch a ride for a fee on the Baranoff Wind Passenger Ferry up bay to a drop-off point. It also will pick you up at a predetermined time. Some years ago, my wife and I sampled the sea kayaking in the park on a week-long cruise on a small ship. Days were spent either kayaking or hiking, and nights were spent back on the ship. One day, we shared a finger of the main bay with a humpback whale and its calf. An unforgettable experience. You can, of course, head out from Bartlett Cove on day trips, or head from there a bit deeper into the bay towards the Beardsley Islands. You'll be wowed by bird life. Check out the park website for areas where motorized craft are prohibited. Isle Royal National Park, Michigan Surrounded by the waters of Lake Superior and dotted with bays, coves, harbors, and islands, as well as inland lakes, Isle Royal is a great paddling destination. But you have to be prepared for fog banks, cold waters, and rough waters, for this is no place to be learning how to paddle. Canoeists and kayakers should be familiar with weather patterns and consult the marine forecast at ranger stations and visitor centers before embarking, the park recommends. Be prepared to adjust your schedule to the weather. A portable marine radio is recommended. Apostle Islands National Lakeshore, Wisconsin Apostle Islands is a kayaker's paradise. Of the 21 islands, presumably named by early Jesuits who, on early maps referring to the scattering of islands as Isle des Twelve Apostles, you may camp on 19 of them. Got two weeks available for paddle-driven exploration? Apostle Islands can accommodate you. If you have a computer, you can quickly check on the wave heights at Apostle Islands if you're planning a paddling trip there. Using a smartphone or the web, you can check the live conditions report at seacaveswatch.org. The website lists the wave height for the previous six hours in 30-minute increments. The site also displays water temperature and photos of the waves at the sea caves, and it relays the wind speed and direction recorded at Devil's Island. Pictured Rocks National Lakeshore, Michigan Back in 2014, Greg Brining wrote an article for The Traveler about kayaking at Pictured Rocks. As he put it, the National Lakeshore, where Lake Superior's stupendous power pounds Michigan's craggy shore, is a tremendous place to kayak. But plan for a few extra days unless you have a really favorable weather report. Greg added that Pictured Rock runs along 40 miles of shoreline, northeast of Munising. Cliffs of Cambrian sandstone rise from the lake's clear, cold waters, some more than 200 feet above lake level. There are rocks on one side and 100 miles of open lake on the other. That makes for some dicey paddling when the wind whips out of the north or northwest, but thankfully there's plenty to do in the meantime on shore. Captain John Smith Chesapeake National Historic Trail Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, District of Columbia, Pennsylvania, New York 
You can take day trips paddling the various tributaries of Chesapeake Bay with kayaks designed for day use, or load up your sea kayak and get a bit more adventurous by venturing into the bay itself. Captain Smith covered nearly 3,000 miles of the bay back in the early 1600s, so you aren't without options. Download a copy of A Boater's Guide to the Captain John Smith Chesapeake National Historic Trail, and you can peruse the many options available to you. My only experience here was a day spent with a ranger and some local paddlers exploring Cat Point Creek and the Rappahannock River below Phone's Cliffs. It was a wonderful sample that has kept this watery trail on my to-do list for further exploration. Other park destinations for paddling you might consider include Acadia National Park, Channel Islands National Park, Lake Mead National Recreation Area, Biscayne National Park, Cumberland Island National Seashore, Cape Cod National Seashore, Lake Clark National Park, Olympic National Park, Padre Island National Seashore, and Indiana Dunes National Park. Now for some safety and other tidbits. If you're heading out with a paddle in hand, be sure to go safely. Leave plans of your trip with friends or family. Check with the park you're heading for concerning permits and regulations. Carry an extra paddle, throw rope, and bilge pump in your boat. Don't forget your spray skirt and PFD. If you're heading into unfamiliar waters, bring along charts. You can't always rely on electronic devices in the backcountry. Wetsuit or dry suit depending on the season as well as water temperatures. A self-rescue paddle float. The foam kind are bulky but don't require you to inflate them. The inflatable floats are easier to pack on your boat. A first aid kit. A signaling device, whether it's a whistle, mirror, or flashlight with a strobe function. Practice boat re-entry in your home waters before heading out to the parks. And remember, as the spread of invasive mussels moves across the country, most, if not all parks, require that your boat be inspected before you enter the water. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. As more and more national parks open back up for your enjoyment, we'll try to keep an updated list of those that are open on nationalparkstraveler.org. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.